everyone. It is December 2020, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I am your host, Sam Mishu, and this is the final podcast of the year. It's really quite hard to imagine that it has been a full year, but it has been just packed, filled with content, outstanding articles, amazing interviews with colleagues from all around the world, just so much expertise, so much experience to share with all of us listeners. It's been amazing. And yet at the same time, it has been one of the most tragic years. COVID-19 continues to ravage the planet and the death rate is mounting. The case rates are mounting and we are thankfully on the precipice of vaccination. I can't wait for 2021 to arrive, for vaccines to be here, and for some sense of normalcy to finally be restored. Until then, please continue to be safe, and thank you so much for being a listener and a part of the EB Medicine family. Today, we're talking about the December 2020 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice. This article is written on the subject of rhabdomyolysis and is authored by Dr. Lee and Dr. Duong. And both of these doctors have done an outstanding job summarizing for us just the practical approach to the treatment and the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis. There's a host of things that we do from a small amount of historical evidence, and they've done an outstanding job summarizing why we do those things, what the benefits are for those things, and the other things that we do that maybe aren't so helpful. And so we're going to take a little time to review the article, delve into what they're teaching us, and hopefully improve all of our practices when it comes to the treatment of rhabdomyolysis. Part 1. The Evidence. In the beginning of the article, the authors do a great job summarizing the evidence for rhabdomyolysis since the year 2000, and pointing out that there really hasn't been that much new research in this area. Cases of rhabdomyolysis do tend to increase sharply around the time of major disasters, especially earthquakes. And the authors note that that's actually where much of our data does come from. In large case series and large databases of information, around the time of major disasters. Unfortunately, because of the kind of unanticipated nature of a natural disaster, there isn't time to set up things like randomized control trials, and so much of the literature is drawn primarily from retrospective chart reviews of these large traumatic events. Nevertheless, there is enough information to make recommendations and to guide our treatment of patients with rhabdomyolysis. But before we dive into that, the authors actually did an exceptionally good job summarizing the pathophysiology, the actual biochemical changes in of rhabdomyolysis. Part 2. Pathophysiology. Specifically, the first three figures in the article do a good job of graphically depicting a myocyte, a muscle cell, and all of the intricate portions on the inside of the cell that we learned about in biochemistry. Now, the myocyte itself is made up of myofibrils. These are the things that execute the actual contraction of the muscle, and they derive their energy from adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, which is stored in mitochondria. 
And then there's the sarcoplasmic reticulum, that structure that houses all of the calcium inside the cell. And these components work together inside the sarcolemma, which is the term given to the plasma membrane of a muscle cell. On the outside of the cell are the ion pumps, and this is what maintains all of the electrolyte balance. So the sodium being high extracellular and the potassium being high intracellular. And the flow of these ions results in release of calcium, and that calcium release results in myocyte contraction, and then the resorption or absorption of the calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum allows the muscle cell to relax or contraction to relax. And that's the normal process of muscular contraction and relaxation. Now this becomes important when we talk about the pathophysiology behind rhabdomyolysis. When there's injury to the muscle cell, that is the lysis of these cells or the destruction of the membrane, all of the intracellular contents are released. So there's high quantities of potassium that are released. There's high quantities of calcium that are released and there is also myoglobin released. And these things at high enough levels become toxic and begin to give the patient symptoms. And that is what results in what we as clinicians see when they present to the emergency department. The most severe complication, of course, is acute renal failure and subsequent death from something like critical hyperkalemia. In fact, one frequently cited study that the authors mention is from 2005, a study of 475 patients, about 46% of whom actually developed acute renal failure. So it's not a rare complication, and it's a very important one to keep in mind when we treat patients with this disease. Part 3. Differential Diagnosis when we start to think about the differential diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis, we come up with a list of conditions, all of which predispose someone to developing rhabdomyolysis. At the top of the list is trauma, and these are the ones we often recognize easily, things like crush syndrome or compartment syndromes or prolonged immobilization. And these are the patients that come to us from major car accidents with prolonged entrapment, and rhabdomyolysis is at the top of our differential. Second would be exertional causes, so strenuous activity, starting a new workout regimen, going to do some extreme workout, and having the worst outcome of overexertion. And this can be associated with things like heat stroke or heat exhaustion as well. Vascular accidents or arterial occlusion can certainly cause rhabdomyolysis by reducing perfusion to the muscle and causing muscle ischemia in that matter. And then there are the numerous drugs and toxins that can cause rhabdomyolysis. Top of this list are things like cholesterol medications or the statins. And then there are drugs of abuse, excited delirium, opioids, salicylates, antihistamines, propofol, quinidine, succinylcholine, thiazides, the list goes on and on and on. It is a lengthy list of drugs that can lead to this condition. And lastly, things like infections, especially viral infections, even common ones like influenza A and B are in this list, and genetic disorders. So these are disorders of glycolysis or glyconeogenesis, and sometimes disorders of lipid metabolism, and they may not be apparent until the patient has presented with recurrent episodes of rhabdomyolysis. And at that point, you may be seeing them and wondering, what is it about you that predisposes you to this condition? Might you have one of these genetic disorders? 
It's quite the thorough list, and I highly encourage you to go take a look at it on page 5 of the article. Part 4. Pre-Hospital Care And that brings us to pre-hospital care. If you're in an area where you have great communication with your pre-hospital colleagues and you're getting reports about incoming patients, this may give you the opportunity to intervene and begin treatment for rhabdomyolysis before the patient even makes it to your department. So based on their history, based on the traumatic event or the prolonged immobilization or the potential crush injury, Really, pre-hospital care begins with IV fluid resuscitation, whether that's normal saline or a lactated ringer. At this point, it doesn't matter which fluid is chosen. The aim is to restore intravascular volume as quickly as possible and improve renal perfusion. There is a little discussion about the utility of urine dipstick, but again, this is not something that's going to be performed on the ambulance on the way to the hospital looking for blood in the urine or a false positive blood in the urine. So ECG monitoring might occur prior to hospital arrival, and if the patient has life-threatening arrhythmias or concerns for hyperkalemia, that might be a pre-hospital presenting symptom for severe rhabdomyolysis as well. Otherwise, it's the basics, monitoring, beginning IV fluid resuscitation, and arrival in the emergency department as fast as possible. Part 5, Emergency Department Care. Once they're in your ED, then the history process begins. And unfortunately, rhabdomyolysis can frequently be accompanied by altered mental status because of the numerous causes, things like drugs and toxins and trauma. So history can be limited, but the classically taught triad is muscle pain, muscle weakness, and dark urine. And really, once it's been looked at in the studies, you get muscle pain and weakness somewhere between 70 and 80% of the time. But having all three of these together is really just 5% of the population. So here's yet another example where the classic triad is actually an exceedingly small percentage of the people who have this condition. Interestingly, in the pediatric population, fever is commonly a complaint, and one study found that it can be up to 68% of patients with rhabdomyolysis in the pediatric age group. So something I personally hadn't considered before, but if there is accompanying fever and muscle pain or muscle weakness, then this is a diagnosis you should consider. Otherwise, historical elements that we might gain from our EMS colleagues would be a history of being found down, being on the ground for a long period of time before someone found them, perhaps a list of medications that includes things like statins for high cholesterol, uh, perhaps altered mentation with drug paraphernalia, perhaps excited delirium that required significant sedation on the way into the hospital so that we did not see them in the excited delirium state. And by the time they arrive, we can't get a history from them consistent with rhabdo, but should still be suspicious of it. These are the kinds of elements we're going to try and draw from the history to help clue us into the fact that the patient might have rhabdomyolysis. Part 6, Physical Examination. And then it's on to the physical examination. And here we're looking for any of the physical manifestations of all of those questions that we asked in the history section. So anything to suggest that they were on the ground for a lengthy period of time, whether that be skin discoloration, skin necrosis, sores along pressure points or pressure ulcers. In addition, we're going to be looking for tenderness of major muscle groups or tenderness throughout all of the muscle groups of the body. 
Rhabdomyolysis can also occur after significant burns, and these should be quite obvious on physical exam as well. And then there are the traumatic injuries, things like fractures and crush injuries, where we're assessing compartments, but also assessing the surrounding muscles. These are the things we're going to be looking for on physical examination. And if they happen to have urine available and it's exceptionally dark, sometimes that can be a clue as well. Part seven, labs. Now, when it comes to diagnostic testing in the emergency department, we're talking about labs. And here, we're specifically testing for electrolyte levels, renal function, and total CK levels. Most labs, according to the authors, are going to report a normal CK somewhere between 45 and 260 units per liter, and that's just the normal range. But CK levels typically rise somewhere within about 2 to 12 hours of the initial insult and don't peak for 24 to 72 hours before they start to begin to decline over 5 to 10 days. So this is a lengthy process. And a commonly cited cutoff for total CK is about five times the upper limit or around 1,000 units per liter. But really, there is no standardized definition, and there's a lot of variability for which cutoff to use, which is why the authors don't have a specific recommendation for a number or a specific target total CK. The CK, of course, is the creatinine kinase, or that material released from the muscle along with all of the other electrolytes and the myoglobin. This particular one, because of how long it stays elevated, is a helpful one to measure and guide the improvement or the resolution of rhabdomyolysis as it peaks and then begins to decline. Interestingly, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute have released a consensus statement on rhabdomyolysis, and they define it as a marked increase in creatinine elevation, typically more than 10 times the upper limit of normal. And even of more importance is the CK level that's most predictive of kidney injury. That's what we are worried about the most. And though there's not a single cutoff, the peak CK can be as low as 5,000 units per liter, but in many studies has been cited as 15 to 20,000 or higher. And so the level we're looking at for acute renal failure or acute kidney injury is significantly higher. Now, you may be wondering, well, if myoglobin is what is released from the muscles and is the primary concern when we're talking about acute renal failure, why don't we monitor those levels and why aren't we measuring directly myoglobin levels? And the answer to that also in the article is that the myoglobin level is not as reliable. The levels are less predictable, they peak much earlier than CK, and they normalize within about six to eight hours because of the rapid urinary excretion and hepatic metabolism, so it's not something you can continue to measure beyond that time frame. Interestingly, troponin is actually elevated in this population as well. And this can be a little deceiving because we look at troponin elevations as a sign of 
cardiac muscle ischemia. And one study from 2011 showed that it can be falsely positive for cardiac ischemia in about 17% of patients with rhabdo. Now, that's not the majority of patients, but still a significant number of people. So an isolated troponin elevation in the absence of any other signs of cardiac ischemia may actually be just related to rhabdomyolysis and not true acute coronary syndrome. Something to keep in the back of your mind. And lastly, there are the other electrolyte derangements, so hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, hyperuricemia, and metabolic acidosis, all of which accompany patients in severe acute rhabdomyolysis, all of which we're going to be looking for in our diagnostic testing, and some of which we might pick up on some other tests, like the ECG, for example. Critical hyperkalemia is going to present in a very predictable manner on ECG and may be the initial hallmark of rhabdomyolysis that you see. Part 8. Treatment. Okay, so we've seen the patient, we've done the history and physical, we've ordered our diagnostic testing, we have the suspicion for rhabdomyolysis or a formal diagnosis, and now we're on to treatment. How is it we're going to treat this condition? And treatment is aimed at a multitude of areas. First, we have to address whatever the underlying etiology is for the rhabdomyolysis. So on that differential diagnosis list, all of those causes for this disease have to be addressed and treatment has to be initiated for that problem. Second, we have to treat the rhabdomyolysis itself and third, we have to try and manage the sequelae, all of the things that are happening because of the rhabdomyolysis. So looking at the things that may have caused it, if there's a traumatic or crush injury or a high energy fracture, those things have to be addressed. Now, typically that's where our surgical colleagues or trauma consultants are going to help us to try and manage these injuries. So their involvement sometimes comes quite early, especially if you're at a large trauma center. Then there are things like temperature derangements. So if the patient has severe temperature exposure, then cooling needs to be implemented as well as the remainder of the treatment. If the patient has some kind of underlying infection, then appropriate antibiotic treatment has to be initiated. And lastly, if they are taking a medication that caused this, that needs to be discontinued. Or if they had some kind of toxic exposure, that cause this, then the patient needs to be decontaminated and an antidote or dialysis needs to be initiated in order to clear that toxin. So that's all part of the first prong of treatment, identifying and beginning treatment for the underlying cause itself. Then comes the second arm of treatment, which is specific targeted treatment for rhabdomyolysis. Our goal here first is fluid resuscitation. The goal is urine output of 300 cc's per hour for at least the first 24 hours in severe cases. We're starting with some kind of IV crystalloid fluid in order to maintain intravascular volume and ensure renal perfusion because we're concerned about patients developing acute renal failure. Now, if the patient is awake and alert and able to engage in conversation, then sure, they could urinate and you could continue to measure their I's and O's or their ins and outs in order to make sure that they're 
making adequate urine to match this 300 cc's per hour. If the patient is incapacitated or altered or obtunded for any reason, then a Foley catheter is exceptionally helpful here so that you can guide your IV fluid resuscitation based on urine output. And of course, no conversation regarding IV fluid resuscitation would be complete if we didn't begin to discuss the type of fluid chosen. The authors remind us that a 2007 randomized control trial conducted by Dr. Cho et al. compared the use of lactated ringer solution to 0.9% or normal saline for the treatment of rhabdomyolysis. And what they found was that high volumes of normal saline lead to iatrogenic hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. That's something you knew already, but in addition to contributing to the overall acidemia, of rhabdomyolysis, another consequence of this was the acidification of the urine, which is actually something we're trying to avoid in this disease. In fact, the authors of that study comparing lactated ringer with normal saline found that patients who received lactated ringer maintained an appropriate urinary pH greater than 6.5 without the need of any other intervention, meaning they didn't have to get IV sodium bicarbonate or mannitol or any other medication, the lactated ringer itself was sufficient. And that patients who received high volumes of normal saline had the opposite condition and did require those alternative therapies as adjuncts. So all in all, if you're going to provide larger volumes of IV fluid resuscitation, lactated ringer, especially in rhabdomyolysis, is actually more helpful and can help you keep that target urinary pH goal greater than 6.5 without having to worry about the addition of sodium bicarb or adding things like loop diuretics to maintain urine output. Which brings us to the discussion of loop diuretics and mannitol. There is a lot of discussion about this in the typical teaching vernacular when it comes to treatment of rhabdo, but the evidence for their use is actually quite poor. When the authors reviewed that evidence, they didn't find sufficient evidence to actually recommend it, but they did note that in the case of severe rhabdo, and that's defined in one study as CK levels greater than 30,000, there was a trend towards greater improvement if the patient received sodium bicarb and mannitol only in this specific group, in addition to normal saline. So there is some small but not necessarily reaching significance uh, evidence that says that you can, in severe cases, use things like mannitol and loop diuretics, but there's a big caveat to that. The patient needs to have adequate intravascular volume. You don't want to take a scenario where there's poor perfusion to the kidney and try and beat the kidney into submission with diuresis before you have adequately resuscitated the patient, administering the correct volume of fluid guided by urine output is important. And if the patient becomes oliguric, meaning they're making no more urine, that is the point where we're getting our other colleagues, our other specialists, our nephrology colleagues involved to discuss renal replacement therapy. 
when we talk about renal replacement therapy, it's important to understand that we're not making this decision ourselves. This is far down the line, and hopefully with the aid of our special consultants, our nephrology colleagues. But there is a great section in the article that describes some of the conundrum around renal replacement therapy. We're talking about when to perform hemodialysis and when to perform hemofiltration. Hemodialysis uses this diffusive method for removing small solutes in the blood, and it's something we're quite familiar with. Hemofiltration actually uses something called a convective method, and it actually removes larger molecules, which can be helpful if you're trying to rid the blood of myoglobin. Unfortunately, removing large molecules like myoglobin also removes things like albumin and can come with its own complications. And so it's important to have that consultation with your nephrologist and discuss what the most appropriate therapy might be. And it may actually be a combination of both, sort of a hemodiafiltration, as it's called in the article, where both techniques are used. But again, that's getting into the nuances of nephrology and then the replacement therapy that's necessary after undergoing one of these procedures and managing those complications. Ultimately, the goal is to restore renal perfusion and renal function, and it's important to remember that nothing does as good a job as the native kidney in removing myoglobin and all of these electrolytes. So patients may need transient assistance with something like hemodialysis or hemofiltration, but the goal is always to restore their natural kidney function because it's going to be far better at eliminating these toxins. Part 9, Special Populations. One of the special populations discussed by the authors is the pediatric population. And they divide this into two subgroups, the children who are 10 to 18, who more closely mirror adults in their exertional and traumatic causes for rhabdomyolysis, and the children under age 10. In the younger children, viral myositis is actually one of the higher or leading causes of rhabdomyolysis and is commonly presenting with fever and other viral type symptoms. And those patients tend to do actually much better despite the number of CK level that's obtained. IV fluid resuscitation is just as important, but with short periods of observation, these patients typically do very well. There is no urine output cutoff or recommended value or scoring system or really any manner for resuscitation of the pediatric child with rhabdo that is studied as well as it has been in adults. And so there are no specific recommendations. And the authors note that the common practice for many of our pediatric emergency medicine clinicians and colleagues is really quite nuanced and outside the scope of this particular review. But if you're treating one of the older children, the mechanisms seem to be quite similar in that 10 to 18 age group. Another special population is those patients who have genetic predisposition. The authors point out that patients with sickle cell disease are predisposed to having rhabdomyolysis, but don't have any significant difference in overall mortality. It's thought that the sickling actually causes muscle ischemia and therefore predisposes them to rhabdomyolysis. But there are also two other conditions referenced in the article. One is a 
mutation in fatty acid metabolism in which patients tend to develop rhabdomyolysis more frequently after exercise or in the setting of infection. And another is actually a skeletal muscle disorder in which patients tend to develop rhabdomyolysis after anesthesia. Now that's just two examples of genetic mutations that can predispose someone to rhabdomyolysis, but unfortunately there aren't any real clinical features that will distinguish them from any other cause when they arrive in the emergency department for the first time. So certainly if there's a history of recurrent rhabdo, it's helpful to consult perhaps with their primary care physician about obtaining this genetic testing, but otherwise we're likely to miss it with their first presentation. And lastly, the authors point out the occurrence or increased incidence of rhabdomyolysis among patients presenting with acute human immunodeficiency virus infection, or HIV, in association with a cluster of other symptoms like headache, fever, malaise, and pharyngitis. Again, this is a rare association between rhabdomyolysis and acute HIV infection, but there have been some case reports, and so the authors state that's something else we should just keep in mind in our differential. Part 10, disposition. And lastly, we talk about disposition. What are we going to do with these patients? And that decision is largely based on the underlying etiology. Obviously, patients with trauma, multiple fractures, crush injuries are all being admitted to the hospital in consultation with our surgical colleagues. But there is going to be a subgroup of people who have normal creatinine, normal electrolytes, and are simply overexerting themselves, have adequate urine output, and feel otherwise well, and those people can actually go home. And though that's likely the practice for many of us already, the authors are quick to point out that there is actual evidence behind this decision-making and that the presence of a normal creatinine with normal vital signs and normal electrolytes and adequate urine output is really a good prognostic indicator. And in that setting, there isn't a specific CK level at which we make the decision. Even patients with significantly elevated CK levels, but with all other normal indices can still go home and have encouraged hydration and rest and follow up for repeat laboratory testing. And that's it for the summary of this month's issue of emergency medicine practice on rhabdomyolysis. Again, the authors did an outstanding job and I highly recommend you go to ebmedicine.net and review the full article and claim your CME credit. While you're on the website, you can take advantage of the December special. You get a $50 Amazon card for any order of more than $300, and that offer is good until December the 31st. All you have to do is include the code AMAZON20 to take advantage of that offer, and I'll put that in the show notes so you make sure you get the correct spelling of that word. And as we look into 2021, in January, both emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice are going to have brand new designs. Look for full color images and other enhancements really to make the evidence-based practical content better, easier than ever to use and apply to your practice. So keep an eye out on your mailbox for that new design coming in January. Until then, it has been my pleasure to be your host for the Amplify podcast. And on behalf of myself and the team at EB Medicine, we wish you the happiest and safest of holidays. I look forward to seeing you in 2021.